Hi, I'm Scott Corelli. And I'm Zach Luna. This year, Spider-Man finally joins the Marvel Cinematic Universe in Spider-Man Homecoming. But 15 years ago, the friendly neighborhood webhead hit the big screen for the first time ever. Introducing Spider-Man Minute, the daily podcast where we analyze and celebrate the Spider-Man movies one minute at a time. Starting with Sam Raimi's web-slinging debut, we discuss everything from genetically engineered super spiders to wall-crawling heroics. Join us as we navigate the great power and great responsibility behind every single minute of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. Spider-Man Minute, available at DuelingGenre.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Dueling Genre Welcome to The Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski. And I'm Todd Mack. And this week we are discussing Stanley Yelnats and Hector Zeroni from the novel Holes by Lewis Sacker. And this was a request by a listener, but we forgot to put down the name of the listener into our Excel spreadsheet. So if you recommended that we talk about the novel Holes, please just let us know on the Facebook page. So we can say thank you because this is a great novel. It is. I had never read this novel. Had you, Todd? No. Okay, we're jumping a little bit. Let's just let our listeners know that Holes is a 1998 novel that follows Stanley Yelnats' adventures at a boys' camp for juvenile delinquents where they have to dig holes every day. It's hard to pigeonhole the genre, but if I had to, I would go with young adult, mystery, comedy, drama, contemporary, rural, fantasy. I think that that fits quite well. (laughs) Well done. (laughs) Though I should probably scratch contemporary because it's not all contemporary because it bounces timeline. That's true. It's a historical... Contemporary. (laughs) <laughs> all of the above there's Hist- a lot going on historical contemporary young adult mystery comedy drama rural fantasy yes okay i, I, I go with that yeah is there a section for that in barnes and noble <laughs> you just walk up to <laughs> the worker and you have to say it like without any pauses can i have the historical contemporary young adult mystery comedy drama rural fantasy please yes <laughs> and you go and there's one <laughs> book on the shelf underneath and it's holes uh, unless some listener knows of some other historical, contemporary, young adult mystery, comedy, drama, rural fantasy that we could put alongside of Holes, holes. Yeah. I would love to read it. Yeah. Because I really love this. But how do we come to it? Todd, have you ever read this novel? No, I've seen uh, the movie. I really like the movie. I do, too. I, I And I think it's a great adaptation. Yes. Uh, all around, agree with every point you just said. Had not seen the book. Loved the movie. And now that I've read the book, it is a fantastic adaptation. Yeah. Uh, the movie is, like, this is pre-Shia LaBeouf going crazy, Shia LaBeouf. Uh, but it is a pretty fantastic film and pretty perfect family comedy, mystery, drama, all those other things. Yeah, we talked about um, National Treasure mm-hmm. not long ago and said it's just a great, like, a great show you could sit down and watch with your kids and have fun watching it. And I think um, we could say the same thing for Holes. Yes. And it, reading this book made me think, I need to go watch Holes with my eight-year-old. Yeah. Super fun. So, some trivia about Holes. It won the 1998 National Book Award for Young People's Literature and the 1999 Newbery Medal. In 2012, the School Library Journal pulled students about their favorite kids' books, and Holes was number six on the list. Wow. I want to see that list now. Yeah. I, I didn't have an immediate link, and I was running short on time to go do an internet hunt for it. <laughs> but that was mentioned on Wikipedia, that it was number six on the list. And as we had mentioned, Holes was adapted into a film in 2003, and I gotta say, it is a pretty perfect adaptation of this story. And not surprisingly, uh, it helped that Lewis Sacker wrote the screenplay for that, uh, that film based on his own novel. Uh, One other thing, uh, Lewis Sacker, he is a classic children's novelist. Uh, We all read him in elementary school. Everything from Wayside School to There's a Boy in the Girl's Bathroom uh, to Now Holes, he is very well known. And I read uh, part of an interview where he said his uh, work day is that he writes for two hours in the morning and after that he's burned out. So he relaxes for the rest of the day. And then every, but every day he makes himself write for two hours and that is how he gets through this. And I think he said holes took about a year and a half and about six drafts to, to feel right. Wow. And that's, so there you go, kids, two hours a day, year and a half, you'll write a classic. You'll, you'll write holes. Uh, okay, listeners, we want to thank each of you for listening, and especially thank those of you who support us on Patreon. And if you would also like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist. 
and support our show with at least $1 per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quickcasts, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers, and all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. So, Todd, we're 139 episodes in, and one thing we've learned in writing summaries is that timeline jumping makes it hard to summarize the story. So... With great pleasure, I announce that you got to write the summary <laughs> for Holes, and I really look forward to hearing you summarize this fantastic novel. Okay. Uh, I'm excited about this. I, f- I feel pretty good about this uh, summary. So Stanley Yelnats, and you'll notice immediately that it Yelnats, Stanley is Yelnats spelled backwards, is a pudgy kid with terrible bad luck. Uh, one day, he is walking down the street, and some shoes fall on top of him. And it turns out that the shoes belong to a famous baseball player with famously stinky feet. And Stanley is sentenced to 18 months at Camp Greenlake for stealing the shoes, even though he didn't steal the shoes. And Camp Greenlake is supposed to be a juvenile delinquent sort of correctional facility, uh, a place where young men go to build character. But it turns out it's just a horrible hellhole where young men go to dig holes in the middle of a dry lake. So here I need to pause and go back and give you some backstory about why Stanley has such bad luck. So Stanley is really Stanley Yelnats IV. His great-great-grandfather was named Elia Yelnats, and he lived in the old world. And when he was a young man, he fell in love with a girl, but she was from a rich family, and her father was not impressed with Elia. So Elia goes to the gyp- a gypsy woman who uh, gives him a little pig and tells him to carry it up the mountain every day. And by the time that the pig is big... Uh, Elia will be strong, and he'll have a big pig, and uh, and so then he'll be able to present that and win the girl. But at the very end, he decides to uh, not carry... Oh, at the very end, the gypsy woman tells him, her name is Madame Zeroni. She says, you need to carry me up the hill at the very end, and that will be the sort of the crowning moment, and then you'll go down and you'll get the girl. So Elia has to take the pig up the hill every day and carry it down the hill. And at the very end, the last time he takes it, he carries the pig up the hill, and he lets the pig walk down the hill, and it turns out that the pig possibly loses a little bit of weight in in that time. In the end, his pig weighs exactly the same as the pig of the rival. If he had denied it that bit of exercise, it would have been just a touch fatter. Would have been just a touch fatter, and he would have got the girl. In the end, the pigs weigh exactly the same, so the dad says for the girl to choose, and she can't decide. And Elia is really mad that she can't decide between him and this other guy, and so he Soul's just... fat man. I remember being in the theater and just laughing so hard at this moment when... So good. When they look at the pigs and they say, well, the, the dad says, I don't care, so you just pick, honey. And she looks and she's like, I can't decide. Just, I pick you. No, I pick you. No, I pick you. And Elia's just like, forget about it. I'm out of here. Uh, I don't want you anyway. And so he leaves and he goes to America. But because he didn't take the gypsy woman up the hill at the very end, it begins the family curse. Uh, and it's the reason that all of the Yelnets have bad luck. Uh, it's, attribu- it's all attributed to Stanley's dirty, rotten, pig-stealing great-great-grandfather. So, uh, so now back in our story, Stanley gets shipped off to Camp Greenlake. And there are three adults there. The Warden, uh, who Stanley doesn't initially meet. Mr. Sir, who is horrible. And a guy that the boys call Mom, who is kind of nice. And every day, the boys have to go out onto a dry lake bed and dig a hole. Uh, And each boy has to dig his own hole, and it has to be as wide and deep as a shovel. And there is nothing around the camp for miles. There's no water for 100 miles in any direction. There are no guard towers. There's no fences. It's just open desert. If you want to leave, you're welcome to go. (laughs) But there's nowhere for you to go. And after his first day, Stanley is nicknamed Caveman. And his first hole is, it's really hard. And he, his hands are bleeding. And it takes him forever. Muscles are sore. Uh, and then eventually he gets better and better at digging holes and, uh, we'll, anyway, we'll move on. But, uh, so one day while he's digging, uh, Stanley finds a gold tube etched with the letters KB and a heart. And the rules of the camp say that if the boys find anything interesting, they have to take it back to the warden and then they'll get the day off, uh, for the rest of the day of digging. So because Stanley is at the bottom of the totem pole, he's obliged to give the tube to the leader of the boys, whose name is X-Ray. And X-Ray, the next day, so it's towards the end of the day, and X-Ray hides the tube, and then the next morning, as they're digging, 
he says, hey, look what I found. And then he gets the whole day off. Um, the warden comes out to where the boys are digging. And it's, she's this beautiful redheaded woman who is obsessed with finding the treasure of an outlaw woman called Kissing Kate Barlow. And so she's impressed with the finding of the tube, which turns out to be a lipstick tube. And uh, she orders the boys to keep digging near X-ray's holes. The problem is that Stanley found the lipstick tube in a different part of the lake bed. And so where they're digging is not where they're supposed to be digging, but Stanley doesn't know how to get out of this. So they spend all this time digging and digging and digging in the wrong place. Yes. Do you have something to say? No, I just, I, I love, like, the logic of all of this is so, like, the way this puzzle is put together. It works narrative, really well. It works so great. I, I don't have really almost, I don't, I can't think of a single nit to pick with this. It's a really good story. It's well put together. Uh, Stanley receives a letter from his mother, and he writes lies to her about how he's learning how to water ski and rock climb. And there's a boy named Zero... And he's the fastest digger among the boys, and he always is looking over Stanley's shoulder at the letters, and it kind of bothers Stanley that he's doing this. Um, and as the months go by, Stanley gets stronger and stronger, and one day Zero asks him to teach him how to read. It turns out that he's looking over his shoulder not because he's trying to spy on Stanley, but because he's just curious about letters because he doesn't know how to read. Uh, and Stanley says no. And it turns out in one of my favorite phrases in this, in the book, it says his body is getting hard, but so is his heart. And, or that his body is getting hard, but his heart is getting harder. And, uh, so on another day, a boy called Magnet steals Mr. Sir's sunflowers. Mr. Sir is always, uh, chewing on sunflower because seeds. Because he quit smoking. Because he quit smoking. And he steals Mr. Sir's sunflower seeds. And as the boys are tossing the bag back and forth, one of them tosses the bag to Stanley, and he accidentally drops the bag of sunflower seeds in his hole, and they spill all over, just as Mr. Sir uh, walks up. And he catches Stanley with the seeds, and rather than rat out his friends, Stanley just takes the blame, and he says, I stole your seeds, I'm sorry. Uh, so Mr. Sir takes him to see the warden, and she's furious, but not at Stanley, she's furious at Mr. Sir for wasting her time with this petty... Thing about the sunflower seeds and so she paints her fingernails with rattlesnake venom and then she slaps mr sir across the face and scratches his face and then he gets this horrible infection and andrew's looking confused in the movie isn't it the yellow spotted lizard venom yeah it's, it's the lizard venom I in the, in in the, the book it's rattlesnake yeah in the, venom. In the book it is but andrew was because i remember doing the same thing was reading the book i'm like it was the lizard venom. It's been a while since I Yeah, but it, it's it, it, the movie. Venom. Yeah. Okay. So you were right, but I just saw his confused look, and I wanted to say, no, okay. Todd's right. Okay. Uh, so she, so she scratches him, and now Mister Sir is furious at Stanley. So at this point in the story, we find out that the original Stanley Yelnets, who is the son of Elia Yelnets, who was the one that had the curse, came to America, had a son named Stanley. And this Stanley was robbed by, uh, by the outlaw Kissin' Kate Barlow and left to die in the desert. But he survived for a long time in the desert. And he told people that it was because he found refuge under God's thumb. Now we're back to Stanley. And he's digging after his encounter. Oh, when, after his encounter with the warden where she scratches Mr. Sir's face, he goes back to his hole. And his hole is dug. And it's Zero, the boy who had asked him to teach him how to read who has dug out his hole and Stanley feels bad for not teaching him how to read. And so he agrees, Oh, okay, I'll teach you how to read. And it turns out that zero is really, really smart, even though he doesn't know how to read. So now we get another long flashback. It's 110 years earlier and green Lake is a thriving, beautiful little town on the edge of a giant Lake. And Catherine Barlow is the beautiful young school teacher. And trout Walker is the rich kid from town who wants her, but she turns him down because he's disgusting and his feet smell like trout. And, oh, yeah, and she makes really great spiced peaches, which she preserves in bottles, which will become important later. So, and then there's a man, a black man in town whose name is Sam. He also lives in Green Lake, but he grows onions in a secret onion patch on the other side of the lake. And then he sells onion concoctions to the townspeople. And Catherine buys lots and lots of onions from him. And then he starts helping her fix up her schoolhouse, and they become friends, and then they become more than friends. <laughs> And one night they kiss, and someone in town sees them kissing. And it turns out that it's against the law for a black man to kiss a white woman, and the penalty for the man is death. So Trout Walker and a mob attack the schoolhouse, they burn it down. And Kate runs to the sheriff, but he does nothing. He says, I, you know, give me a kiss. 
and then maybe I'll go do something. And she refuses, and he tells her they're going to hang her boyfriend, Sam. So she runs, Kate runs to warn Sam, Catherine, runs to warn Sam, and they try to escape across the lake, but their boat is smashed by Troutwalker's larger one. Uh, Sam jumps out of the boat, he's shot in the lake and dies, and Kate is rescued against her wishes, and she walks into the sheriff's office. After she gets back, she gets a gun, she walks in the sheriff's office, and she shoots him, and she plants a big kiss on him, and thus she becomes the feared outlaw kissing Kate Barlow, who would later rob Stanley Yelnets I of his suitcase in the desert, and after that, it never rained in Green Lake after that. The lake dried up, and uh, that's where we get to now. A lot of curses. Yes. <laughs> oh, but years later, Kate returns to Green Lake, and it's abandoned, and she's crazy, and she talks to dead Sam. Uh, but Trout Walker, this guy, comes back and finds her, and he wants to know where she's hid all of her loot, because she's traveled all over the West robbing banks, and she must have just a huge fortune. And she tells him that there isn't one... Uh, but Trout is poor now because he had been rich, but his money dried up with the lake. Kate says he's going to have to dig for her treasure. And uh, and then a yellow-spotted lizard uh, bites Kate, and she dies. Because when a yellow-spotted lizard dies, bites you, you die just instantly. And But right before she dies, so I guess not instantly, because you, you have a chance to say your final words. <laughs> and her final words is uh, for Trout and his red-headed wife to start digging, and then she dies laughing. So back at camp, Mr. Sir is furious at Stanley, and he just doesn't give him water during the days, um, and so Stanley really suffers for a while. But he starts to teach Zero how to read, and it turns out Zero tells him that his real name is Hector Zeroni. Now remember, the last name of the gypsy lady was, she was Madame Zeroni, that cursed Elia for not carrying him up the mountain before he left uh, for America. So then during a lightning storm, Stanley looks up and he sees a rock outcropping, uh, that looks like a thumb against the sky. And it reminds him of the story of his great-grandfather, who had said that he had survived in the desert uh, by by going to God's thumb. And Stanley wonders if maybe that's this is the God's thumb that he had talked about. Uh, Stanley has now been a, at Camp Green Lake for 46 days, and his pudgy body is now lean and strong. Uh, so one day, they're in the hole, or, or they're digging, And this boy, Zigzag, attacks Stanley because he thinks that Stanley is getting uppity because he's been teaching Zero how to read, and Zero has been helping him to dig his hole. So then Zero attacks Zigzag and nearly kills him. And then the warden shows up, and all the other boys tell uh, the warden that Stanley doesn't do his part of the digging, and she forbids him from giving reading lessons to Zero. And then Zero grabs a shovel, and he just clocks mom (laughs) in the face with the shovel and he just runs out across the lake into the desert no water nothing and stanley hopes that zero will find water on big thumb but the chances are that he'll probably die of thirst and uh, the warden orders mr sir and mom to destroy all of zero's records so their plan is to just destroy all of his records he doesn't have any family nobody will care about him and he'll just disappear the next day stanley tries to steal the water truck uh, and he plans to drive it ac- across the desert to find Zero, but he just drives it into a giant hole. <laughs> like he steals it and then immediately drives it into a hole. And then he jumps out and he just runs into the desert. And he has no water. And he wants to go to God's Thumb to see if maybe that's where Zero is. Uh, but on the way, he finds Sam's old boat. Uh, so Sam was Kate Barlow's boyfriend. He finds this boat, and underneath the boat, he finds Zero. And Zero has been surviving all this time on a substance that he calls sploosh, which is Kate's old spiced peaches in bottles. So he's been eating these um, these peaches. And then Stanley... The description of them is still gross. <laughs> like it's awesome. black and <laughs> viscous. But it kind of tastes good still. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, Stanley tells Zero the story about God's Thumb, and they decide to try to reach it. Eventually, they make it to a rock wall and start making their way up the side, uh, climbing from ledge to ledge. And they make it to the top and start to see plants, but Zero is getting really, really sick. He's sick from the peaches, and he's totally dehydrated and heat-exhausted, and uh, and he passes out. So Stanley picks him up and starts carrying him up this steep hill. And when he gets to the top, he's totally exhausted, and he falls down into this muddy ditch, uh, which turns out that it has water and it's muddy. And so he digs, he kind of digs out the mud and he's able to get some water and they're able to become revived. And there's all these onions. 
So they eat onions and muddy water, and they next morning they're doing a little bit better. And Zero confesses that he was the one that stole Clyde Livingston's shoe. So the the baseball player's shoes from the very beginning that just dropped out of the sky. They dropped out of the sky because Zero was at like a uh, a boys' home or something, and uh, they had it was a place where they often had clothes that people could take, uh, like a like a shelter. Yeah. And he saw these shoes and he took them not knowing that they were, they belonged to a famous baseball player. And when he realized he just threw them. Right. And th- and they were there because uh, the baseball player was going to auction them off for that shelter. Yes. So when he realized that he had stolen these shoes, he just threw them in the air and they happened to land on Stanley. And so anyway, coincidence. And the, so then they, the boys get better and they decide to make their way back to the camp and to try to dig where Stanley had found the lipstick case, because he knows that that belonged to Kate Barlow. And so their plan is that they're going to find the treasure and then just live as fugitives, because they're both on the lam now. And uh, when they find the hole where Stanley um, had found the lipstick, they start to dig, and they find a suitcase. And then right as they find the suitcase, the warden and um, and Mr. Sir and Mom show up, and they want to steal the suitcase, but Stanley realizes that he's standing in a yellow-spotted lizard nest. And so remember, these are these horrible, ferocious lizards that if they see you, they bite you. And if they bite you, you die. And Stanley is just covered in lizards, but they're not biting him. And so we have this kind of standoff uh, where they're demanding that he give them the suitcase. He won't give them the suitcase. They will not go near him because of these lizards. Right. They won't go near him because of the lizards. They're demanding that he leave them. He realizes that if he gets out of the hole and gives it to them, he'll die. And so he just stays in the hole and they spend the whole night there. <laughs> and in the morning, uh, the they're all still there. The lizards have mysteriously left him alone. And a lawyer shows up with the attorney general. And Stanley gets out of the hole. And they open up the suitcase. And it, it well, has... open it there. Oh, it has Stanley Yelnitz's name on it. Yes. On the outside of the suitcase. Because the, when the attorney general comes, the warden says, he stole that from me. And then Zero's like, it has Stanley's name on it. Right. <laughs> Uh, and so then they set, uh, Stanley and Zero free, and it turns out that the onion juice is a yellow-spotted lizard repellent. (laughs) And that's why, because they had been eating so many onions, that's why the lizards didn't, um, get them. So the curse is lifted, it turns out, because a descendant of Elia Yelnets had carried a descendant of Madame Zeroni up the hill. And so this complete, uh, it, uh, fulfilled the the promise, the contract, uh, the curse is lifted. Stanley's father invents a way to cure foot odor. The suitcase has $20,000 and some very, very valuable documents. And he and Stan, uh, he and Hector both inherit nearly a million dollars each. And they all live happily ever after. And, and that's the story. And Hector hires a private investigator who finds his mom. And Hector he finds has his mom. Whole yeah, he finds his mom. And uh, that's the end of the story. Ah, oh, great summary, Todd. When you were reading this book, having never read the book before, but having seen the movie, were you picturing the movie? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Every scene. And I have to say, I never did the opposite. Like, I never read the book without the movie, but it felt so perfect to have the imagery of the movie. The only it. difference that I can think of is that they take special care at the beginning of the book to mention his physical state and that he's, he's overweight. really overweight. And, and he's getting stronger while he's digging. And because they have the Shia LaBeouf as the actor, they didn't. Yeah, they didn't really lean into that uh-huh. as much. I think in the film, I I no, think I, I maybe think only saw the movie one time or twice. Yeah, but I don't remember that at all. But I remember like the Mister Sir is John Voight. Oh and... yes, totally. <laughs> oh, it's it such perfect casting in that film. It really, yeah, it is. It's a it's it's a really really good adaptation of what is a fantastic book. Like the puzzle pieces fit so perfectly. And you don't, like, because I'd seen the movie, I knew these were all, like, everything that we were being told mattered. Mm-hmm. But it was amazing, like, to think about it as the writer, like, just inventing whole cloth, this story, and finding the right way to introduce, like, a dozen Chekhov's guns <laughs> that yes. we fired later <laughs> that are going to matter. Uh, you know, things that, and, and pay it off enough that you feel like you understand why that piece was shown to us. Yes. But then it really matters two acts later, you yeah. know, in the story. It's really, I, I think, so sometimes when we read a novel, we'll say, this is amazing because of the right, like the prose, the way that one word connects to another word. And I can't say that this is like the most beautifully written prose that I've ever read. It's a pretty straightforward uh, narration. But the thing that makes this 
really stand out as a novel is the structure and the way that every piece fits together. Like it's, it's seamless. It's airtight. Yeah. And, and I when, love that. Just talking, I was thinking about the movie and whenever it mentioned Sam, I just had Dulé Hill. Yes. He's so perfect as Sam in the, in the movie. I forgot that it was him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's just delightful. It's really, really fun. Um, it deals with some heavy things without becoming never feeling preachy, overbearing. Yeah, like it deals with some race issues, but it never feels like you're getting a lecture about race relations in the United States, yeah, or anything like that. Um, it's it's just a lot of fun. Uh, I really enjoyed it. So, uh, so should we talk about Stanley then? Yes, let's talk about Stanley, and then I want to take some time with Hector. Okay, because I really liked his character arc as well. So what do you think about Stanley? Let's let's play the game where we try and label like give ten. Identifying characteristics of Stanley Yelnats. Okay. So one word. Well, I'm going to go with in the book. Like, it's the thing that it stuck out so much because it's different than the movie, but chubby, right? Like, uh-huh. he, he's not the hardworking kid. He's just kind of a, a chubby, you know, not lazy, but not uh-huh. active kid. I'm going to say this, and I'm not sure. So, so the word that I'm going to say is hopeful. It mentions at the very, even at the very beginning, even as he's sort of lazy and not really in control of his life and complaining about the bad luck that has come onto his family because of his dirty, rotten, pig-stealing great-great-grandfather, he even mentions at the very beginning that he's hopeful. I mean, he's not, uh, he's not Eeyore, like, wandering around saying, oh, I have terrible luck, even mm-hmm. though every time something bad happens to him, he's like, well, yeah, of course it does. Yeah. But he feels hopeful, and I, I think that that's a characteristic that stays with him throughout mm-hmm. the film. I'm going to go with unlucky. Yes. <laughs> um, this is like a consistent point until, you know, he resolves that curse that like, if there's a wrong place to be, he's going to be there. Yes. Uh, wrong place, wrong time. Yes. Everything from like why he's at the camp to things that go wrong at the camp. Mm-hmm. Like he, he accidentally messes with one of the bigger kids uh, in the rec room. He gets stuck with all the sun, sunflower seeds. Uh, so unlucky. But the, I mean, the counter to that is finding the lipstick case. Yes. Which is... What, like, there are... It seems like thousands of holes, right? Yeah. Every, I mean, it's, it was... They say it was the biggest freshwater lake in Texas. And, and it's at dry. Its time. And, and now it's completely digging, dry. And they've been digging everywhere. There's holes by the house. There's holes all around the... All around in the lake bed. Way on the other side of the lake bed. I mean, it's, it's a huge area. And there's holes everywhere. And for him to find the, the lipstick case is... So, so what's your word for... Ca- or is that a word to get... No, I, no, I'm just... It's yeah. it's kind of a counter to yeah. the saying, oh, he's so unlucky, well, so unlucky. I think that we could fit in, maybe instead of unlucky, maybe we should say faded. <laughs> yeah, I like that better. Because he's faded for all the bad luck, but he's also faded to resolve it for his family. Right, yes. Yes, I like faded maybe better than unlucky. Let's, let's switch it. I think I would say this is a different kind of describing word, but I want to say dynamic because he changes a lot over the course of this mm-hmm. novel. Yeah. And I like that about him. Uh, there are certain things that are core to his personality and his character throughout, but he also changes really pretty dramatically and, and, and they bring attention to it in interesting ways uh, in talking about the way that his body becomes hard, mm-hmm. uh, but his heart is hard. His heart is harder but then his heart becomes soft and he's able to develop this relationship with Hector. And I just, I like the way that he changes over the course of this novel. So I'm going right. to say dynamic. And this is going to be an interesting one because I think we would often label this as a negative, but it's just, it works so well. This He's accepting, right? Like horrible yes. things happen to him, but he doesn't like rail and get angry uh-uh. and he raises fists to the sky and become embittered or cynical. Like he's accepting of, well, this is what my life is. <laughs> this is because what I'm going to my do. dirty, rotten, pig-stealing Greg yeah. grandfather. Uh-huh. <laughs> It's, and it would be so easy to write that kind of character and have them become those things, like cynical or, you know, um, angry, you know, at the world. And he's, he's not angry at the world. Yeah, it's it's an interesting balancing act between this accepting that bad stuff is happening and understanding why. I mean, it, he has a he has a, a story for why bad stuff happens Right, like to a him. defining personal mythology. And so, it, it yeah, like stuff happens and he just kind of takes it. But he remains hopeful and and like good, like a positive character, even despite the fact that he's just sort of like, yeah, I just have bad luck. And I'm always <laughs> in the wrong place at the wrong time, and so is everybody else in my family. And you know, it's just okay, right? And and like even accepting like one of my favorite examples of this is when he gets stuck with the sunflower seeds, mm-hmm. and Mister Sir comes. He could have pointed the finger 
absolutely honestly at everyone else yes. in the group except for Hector. I think everyone else had stolen some. Right. And instead he said, yeah, you caught me. <laughs> and he went to take the punishment. Yeah. I, um, I would, I would say one word that I would use to describe him is, um, caring. Like, and you see it in the letters that he writes to his mom. And this is, again, sort of accepting the situation that he's in. He, You can imagine a different character would write to his mom and say, this place is horrible, get me out of here, they're treating us so terribly. But he's kind of accepts the situation that he's in, but he also doesn't want his mom to worry. And so he makes up these fantastic stories about, oh, we spent all day on the lake today, and tomorrow they're going to teach us how to water ski. And he's doing it to, to protect his mom because he loves her and he doesn't want her to worry. And... um I think that's sweet. Well, and it's also, you see the caring relationship that forms with Hector Zeroni. Yeah. Uh, like, that is just a wonderful friendship uh, that isn't there at the beginning, and he, it's when he's, like you said, he's getting harder, emotionally harder, but once something breaks down, it feels like it's like the return of the real Stanley, when he starts to help. Yes. When he starts to help Hector. It's the return of, it's, it's, it's the return of the real Stanley, but it's like the hero's return, mm-hmm. because he's different. And better, because he's gone through this, I mean, he's been in the hole. I mean, it's like, <laughs> hello, right? Like, he goes down, descends into hole, comes back out, and he comes back to become the same person that he was before, but better. He's stronger and more confident, and he becomes sort of the leader of the group of boys. And that's what eventually leads Zigzag to attack him, is because he realizes that Stanley is disrupting status quo. Yeah. Uh, determined, I think, works. Like, mm-hmm. I think every one of those boys, like, whatever claim that, of how this is gonna help <laughs> these boys to dig the holes, one thing that you do see is determination in the form of, like, I'm gonna dig my hole, I'm gonna get it done. Yes. And it would be so easy to, like, just give up. And it's, even on the first days, when it's, they say, like, day one's the hardest, or the first hole's the hardest hole, except for the second. And then, and, the and, third. And, and except for the third. And eventually it does say, like, it became easier because it became stronger, my muscles were harder, I was more used to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but any one of those early days, he could have quit. Or, or, or tried to beg some other way out. And he never did, because he was going to dig his hole. And then you see the same determination when he's like, I'm going to go find Hector. Um, and when he carries Hector up the hill. Yes, carrying him up the hill. I love, love, love the part of the novel when he's carried Hector up the hill. And he's like, I gotta go back down and get the shovel. I was just gonna say that. He's like, where in the world is the shovel? And he's like, it can't have been that far. Like, he didn't realize how far he carried Hector. And he's like, going down, and he's like, it's gotta be right around this next bend. Because I, I could not physically have carried him that far. But he did. Yeah. He's determined. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I like that. Determination. This is the point where we always peter out. <laughs> like, we run through. I know, I feel... <laughs> I mean, he, he's a great character, and I'm sure we could go on. I don't know how long we want to do this, but uh, I really like him. I like the way that he changes. I like th- the changes feel consistent with his character to where you never, I, I never get the feeling like, oh my gosh, he's a completely different person now. And, uh, all of the changes feel earned. Like even the negative ones where he's becoming harder, like you understand why. Yes. <laughs> you're, you're allowed to get a little uh, uh, short with other yeah. people when you spend all day in the Texas digging, hay, holes. digging five by five holes. <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy. You uh, wanted to talk about Hector. Yes. Uh, this, like, I think all the other characters, like, you're given just enough to, like, get a snapshot and think uh-huh. that's a real, real person. Like, all the other boys, X-Ray and, and Matt, even Magnet, who's there. Or, no, yeah. Twitch. Twitch, who's Twitch there. Is, who, Twitch comes in when somebody has to leave. Right, and he's there for, like, ten minutes. Oh, when Zero leaves, because yeah. he's... Yeah, like... Run off into the desert. Like, a chapter of the book. But he feels like a full character. Yep, I agree. Uh, the way that he gets described. But the other one that has... Like a full journey, I guess, mm-hmm. as a character is is Hector Zeroni, mm-hmm. and I love the friendship that develops between Hector and Stanley. But um, what do you see his journey as? So he starts out as the quiet. So so he never talks. He's called Zero because they say is Zero going on in his head. Uh-huh. Um, so some of it is a journey of revelation for us more than a transformation for his character. But at the same time, he's opening up with Stanley in a way that he never has with anyone else. So I yeah. think there is a transformation like that happens that. there. There are things that we learn about him. So like. He can't read, um, which at first kind of goes with the ignorant thing. But the way that he talks about numbers, I love it's that so description. so cool, yeah. Um, when Stanley, so like they're, Stanley's teaching him the letters, and like Stanley teaches him, and then he's like, well, actually there's two letters. Like there's two of every kind of letter. <laughs> so it's because he draws the capital letter, and they go through the whole alphabet. And says, there's actually two of each. And then without missing a beat, Hector said, what, what does he say? He says, so there's 52 oh, letters. Right, yes. And... Stanley, like, what are you talking about? And he says, 
there's 52. And he goes, how did you get that number? Did you add or did you multiply? And Hector says, what are you talking about? There's just 52. That's how numbers work. <laughs> and he does this over, like, there are several other examples when they're talking about yeah. days. Like, he, when um, Stanley's trying to figure out how many days he's been here or how many doles, uh, holes he's dug, uh, he know, uh, Zeroni knows it immediately. Yeah. And he's just, again, he's, he doesn't explain it. He just says, that's how numbers work. So he, he's smart. He just has never been educated. Right. And then we, when we learn his backstory, that is heartbreaking. So his backstory, which kind of got cut from the summary for time, naturally, um, is that he lived in a home with his mom and he has memories of being in a yellow room. And he even says, like, I don't think it was an apartment. I remember it being a home. Mm-hmm. And I remember my mom. And then we had to leave the home and I don't know why. But we lived on the street. For and, a month. Yes. and he, Oh, no, then no, his mom left. Yes. and it, Well, yes, he, they lived on the streets, but it, sometimes his mom would go do stuff and we never find out what this is. Uh-huh. You know, there's no clue at all. Because this is from, like, he's four years old or five years old uh-huh. when this is happening. Really little. But the mom would say, like, you stay right here for three hours, and I'll be back in three hours. Uh, and But then one day, she leaves him at a park and says, I'll be back later today. And she never comes back. And he lives at lives at this park. For a month. For a month. And, and like, he, he starts to describe the park. And Sam's like, hey, I know the park. And he's like, yeah, you know the tunnel between the slide? And, and Sam's like, yeah. He's like, that's where I slept for a month. Yeah. <laughs> And there's uh, um, some other moments that are really heartbreaking. Like he says, there was a birthday party there. I saw other kids eating cake and one girl or, or another kid invited me to play and eat cake. And all of a sudden one of the moms came and yelled and, and shooed me away. Uh-huh. Uh, I told the other kids to stay away from me because that was dangerous or something like yeah. that. And it's just like, you feel so sad for him yeah. in that moment. But the other really, I think, interesting moment is when he admits to Stanley, he's like, I know you're innocent. And at first, Stanley, like, I think it's, he says to Stanley, I know you're innocent. And it's several chapters before you find out this other turn that... He says, you didn't steal the shoes. Yeah. Or, or oh, what was it? It was something about the sunflower seeds and uh-huh. you didn't take the you seeds. You didn't take the seeds, just like you didn't take the shoes. Yeah. And Stanley's like, how'd you... <laughs> he's like, you're right, I didn't. Yeah. Uh, and Stanley, at this point, has accepted his fate. He's not going to make a big deal about it. But it's chapters later that we find out this other part about Zeroni having stolen the shoes. So I just had a thought, not about Hector, but tangentially about Hector, but it's about Kate Barlow. So when we discussed um, The Dark Knight, we talked about the Joker. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of that discussion had to do with um, what turns somebody into a villain. And uh, what's the quote from Dark Knight? Like one, one bad day. One bad day. One bad day can turn you into a villain. And we we sort of tossed around this idea of what is it that turns somebody into a bad person? And, um, and one idea is that, you know, maybe there's stuff that's kind of bubbling around and it's really a series of bad things that then you just snap with this one moment. It's not really one bad day. Yeah. In the case of Kate Barlow. It is. It really is one moment. And I mean, she's the description of her. There is nothing in our description of Kate Barlow that says that she's anything but goodness and light and sweetness and kindness. And kindness to children. She's a teacher. She's a teacher. She loves her kids. She teaches the adults in, yes. the, in the town. She teaches night school. And she te- and, and there's nothing to indicate that she's going to just walk in and shoot the sheriff in cold blood and plant a big kiss on him and then become a... A villain. A, a bank robber and a murderer. Yeah. And... I just think it's shocking. I mean, it, it really is shocking. And, and I don't know what to make of it. But it's interesting to think about her and that one moment, which is, granted, a horrific moment yes. in her life. I mean, that's a traumatic experience. Every kind of- Unlike what a lot of people, most people in our lives, thank goodness, will never have that kind of trauma in our lives. But then you look at Hector Zeroni, right? Yeah. And you have this comparison with a child who has seen that kind of uh, racism. Constant, yes. And uh, classism. Racism, classism, abandonment, uh, violence has been done against him, and yet he remains good. Uh, th- th- I don't know that there's anything to tell us why, in one case, a really good person with a beautiful, privileged life can change everything at the you know drop of a hat. And somebody else who has been constantly badgered by by Every all kind of, of these, so. yeah, and and maintains his humanity and goodness throughout. I just I think it's an interesting kind of contrast. And yet, like neither of these characters feels wrong. No, in how they're presented to us. 
No, and and neither of them feels, um, it, yeah, I mean, wrong or like inauthentic, like yes, yeah, fake. That's what I mean. yeah. Neither of them feels fake. They both feel real, and they both feel like legitimate responses to the world that they live in. They're just so different, and um, and I think it's a credit to the the author who can create two characters who go through really horrible things, respond in different ways, and just say, this is kind of how it is. Like, some people respond differently to different things. Um, and, and that's normal. What do you think it is that draws Hector to Stanley? Because he definitely has a different relationship from fairly early on with Stanley mm-hmm. compared to the other boys in is Camp D, right? Is there... It's a, a group, D? group D, I group think, D. yeah. yeah. Uh, well, Stanley is different. Like, we know there's this backstory of a family relationship that actually is tying them together. Like, there's this larger mystical connection that we just kind of have to accept. Stanley doesn't belong in a- at Green Lake. Yeah. A- 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 and we don't know a lot about the other boys. They're all... They all seem to be kind of hardened, cr- quote-unquote, criminals, right? Yeah. Like, these are boys that have done stuff to deserve to be there. Hector and uh, and Stanley are the two who really do seem to be kind of innocently there. Uh, that may be one reason why they're kind of drawn to each other. But Stanley just, I mean, he d- totally doesn't fit in. <laughs> yeah. And he knows he doesn't fit in. When they give him a nickname, they call him Caveman, he's so relieved. Just to, he's, he, what do you say, they could they could have called me... What this? Well, his replacement, he replaced Barf Bag. Oh, yeah. And he said something like, it wasn't worse than Barf Bag, but... He, I would have been happy for them to call me Barf Bag, <laughs> yeah. just to call me anything, because to feel like he's been um, accepted Adopted, into the yeah. into the group is huge for him. And I think if you were, I don't know, like Dally from The Outsiders or something, he's not like wishing that, the, oh, I hope they give me a nickname so that I'll be accepted. Like, you know, most of these kids are more in line with, you know, the crew from The Outsiders than... <laughs> and they are with Stanley. Stanley's just in the wrong place at the wrong time, and he ends up there. And so is Hector, really. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to think about the curse, because you you would think that Madame Zeroni, if she really is going to curse the family, that she would maybe like bless her own or something. <laughs> but her own descendants don't really seem to have been in really great shape. Yeah. Which I think is interesting. What about this element of the story, which does have this kind of mystical, fantastical side to it? I like it. I do too. It works. I think it's story. totally delightful. It's handled charming with a deft hand. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't make it feel like this story. It. I mean. I mean. What do you want? To, I, I. Like we we joked about what, how many genres this story is yes. actually <laughs> dancing in, but it all just feels right. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't feel. Uh, I think there there may be a um, a danger. In creating a story like this with this fantasy element, for the fantasy to feel like a Deus Ex Machina or something, like it comes in and it saves everything, and it's not really explained. It's all really hand wavy, and it it could you could you could leave a story like that feeling kind of dissatisfied. Uh-huh. But um, I think depth is maybe the right word to use in this case. Like it just feels like it's done so well that all of the elements fit together to create this puzzle, and no one. No one element outweighs the others, right? And so I, it's all balanced. I, what I was thinking is like if they'd come down off of God's thumb, yes, <laughs> and they dug the hole, and then the same thing happens with the lizards, but there'd been no explanation of the onions and the onion juice, and it was just like, oh, their family's fixed now. Yes, that would have been unsatisfying. But because we also have the lizards not liking onion blood, I think is what Sam says. Yes, <laughs> uh, and they've been eating onions for a week, and that's what's saving them from the lizards. You know, it's it just all, like you said, it, it, there's all these other elements of the story that are also working for a positive conclusion. And mm-hmm. it's not just Deus Ex Machina of he carried the ancestor of, of Madame Zorro. And Zorani. so now everything's perfect. Or the, the not the ancestor, the, what's the other Descendant. Direction? Descendant. <laughs> yes, thank you. Of Madame Zeroni uh, of the hill. And that's fixing it. Yeah. I, I, it's, um, it's really, I just think it's super fun. <laughs> it's really delightful. Uh, other characters? <laughs> It, it might be my movie mental image of John Voight as Mr. Sir. <laughs> the way he embodies and inhabits that character is so perfect. Who's the actress that, that plays the warden? It's uh, Sigourney. Is it Sigourney, Sigourney Weaver? Weaver? Yeah. She's so good also. Also, yes. Fantastic. And I don't remember the name of the actor who plays Mr. Mom. But, I mean, it's just so perfect the way yeah. they're these different layers of uh, authority figures. I think that there's something really tragic in the warden. 
and she's a it's it's Warden Walker. She's a descendant yeah, of Trout so Walker. Yeah, so it's again a curse. And yeah, she's cursed, and it's like her. So the Walker family has been at Green Lake digging holes. Kind of cursed by because of Kate Barlow, who said start mm-hmm. digging, and uh, they've been digging and digging and digging, and just to. And there's something kind of tragic in in that. It, and I, I did not feel that tragic as much in the book as I do in the movie. Uh-huh. And so that's probably Sigourney Weaver's performance. But I think something was tweaked about the finale when they don't open the case for her. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, like they still didn't open the case for her in the book, but I think it was more uh, more significant in the, in the I movie. I think you're right. I don't remember. I don't remember the film as well, but I do remember her performance. And I don't know. It's something again. It's there. There's like little things that this that uh, what's the name? Sakin, Sarkin, Sakin, uh, Sacker, Sacker. <laughs> that Sacker does in this uh, with this narrative, like the physical description of the warden, is close, far closer to the wife of Trout. When Trout shows up at the end and Kate is gone crazy and she's gone back to Green Lake and Trout shows up with his wife, his wife is a little girl that had been a student of... Was a little girl. Not is a little girl. Let's make clear. Trout, wife, Trout is a horrible human being. We didn't marry a child. <laughs> she, she had been one of Kiss uh, and Kate Barlow's students when she was a teacher. Right. But we get the impression that she's... I mean, I don't get the impression that she's like really old. Yeah. She's not... At this point, years have passed. Mm-hmm. But the description of her that she's this young redheaded girl and she's got this beautiful red hair and the freckles and that's the description of the warden. And, and Kate, like her heart is broken to see this student that she loved married to this really horrible guy and that now she's not beautiful anymore and her face is splotchy and her hair's all messed up and, um, it's this outward, uh, description of kind of inward corruption. That happened to her through being associated with Trout. And then for the warden to be marked as not not the descendant of Trout Walker, but the descendant of this woman that was kind of violated by Trout Walker, I, I think lends just an extra level of kind of sadness mm-hmm. to the warden. It could just as easily have been a crazy guy with stinky feet. Yeah. And who was, a, you know, the descendant of Trout Walker. But she's not really the descendant of him. She's the descendant of the wife. And there's something s- sad about that. Mm-hmm. And it just, it's, I think it, it's just careful writing that, that makes it something already cool better. Yeah. <laughs> I completely agree with it. And again, like, this is one of the, this stands out to me of the hundred plus things we've talked about. As one where I don't have a single nit to pick, <laughs> pretty much with the with the story, uh, or with any of the characterizations that we get. Um, after we we get that out of the way at the beginning, but there's just this is a pretty perfectly told story. Um, and like you said, maybe the prose isn't the most elegant prose. It's not Neil Gaiman. Yeah, but, but I don't care that it's not I, Neil Gaiman. at all. It's not trying to be Neil Gaiman, which which also would have been you know like the. I don't know. I mean, maybe he could do it, but... <laughs> <laughs> but just the way this, this story interlocks and the way each one of these characters feels real, even though everything about the story is absurd. <laughs> um, and, and you know, just uh, an exaggeration of reality. Uh, it still works so well, and, and it captures the perfect tone. It kind of reminds me of, um, s- structurally, in a way, of, like, the prestige. Uh-huh. And that um, the story is... It's like a magic trick. And at the very end... You, the magician just goes, you know, like mic drop, right? <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> like I just did this amazing thing and I've been doing amazing things all along where you go, Oh, that's cool. Oh, that's great. And at the very end, there's this big, huge thing. And then the, the magician just sort of walks away and says, I just totally nailed it. <laughs> and, and that's how I feel at the end of this. Like I've just seen an amazing magic trick that starts with the very beginning. Camp Green Lake is and the yellow spotted lizard and like everything matters in the story. Every element of the story the matters. Onions. <laughs> the, yes, the, the, the onions. Yes, the onions. The onions, the pig stealing grandpa, the going up the hill. Kissing Kate Barlow. The peaches. Which, which we first meet kissing Kate Barlow when we're told that his great, his dirty, rotten, pig stealing great great grandfather had been held up 
by kissing his Kate son Bush. had been oh, right, right. and that was a mark of the family curse but then we don't know yet how significant kiss and kate barlow is we yes. just think it's funny that you know uh, another mark in the family's tragic history yeah it's so good so good so good final thoughts on this this is uh one case where i recommend both the book and the movie and i oh, think yeah. you should do both it's not like choose one or the other like and i don't think you have to do one before you do the other nope <laughs> because it, it's i mean the the ad because it's such a short book it was it was a pretty quick read it's a i mean it's a four it's a, hours on audible yeah uh young adult or middle grade reader level easy uh-huh so uh but uh, again i don't think there are somewhere i would say don't no, you have to read the book before you watch the film uh and in this case i don't think it matters because mm-hmm. they both tell really close to the exact same story um and they're both Totally delightful on their own, but like better together. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I think this is one where they're, they're elevated because we have both. Yeah. I like it. All right. That wraps up this episode. Thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all of the other dueling genre shows, go to, go to duelinggenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the protagonist podcast in your podcast app of choice and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. If you enjoyed this episode, you may want to check out episode number 14 when we discuss the novel, The Graveyard Book, the coming of a coming-of-age story with some darkness to it, or number 134, when we talked about the film Sing Street, a coming-of-age story with some depressingly bleak elements and joyously beautiful elements. <laughs> this is way more uh, light than, than Sing Street. Sing Street. Yeah, Sing Street just has that Dickensian <laughs> darkness <laughs> in the boarding school scenes. Yes. Uh, but, I mean, we are dealing with, you know, racial lynchings <laughs> in holes. Yeah, so well. uh, you're right. <laughs> Uh, you can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss. And thank you again to whoever did suggest uh, <laughs> that we we cover the novel holes. Uh, or you can give us comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod, at Todd K. Mack, and at Jay Dorowski. And our producer, Andrew, is at Andrew underscore Dorowski. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. We have really good conversations there with our listeners and would love for you to say hello anytime. If you would like to support the show financially, you could buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation with a monetary donation by going to patreon.com slash protagonist. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character and a great story. So long. So long. Some trivia about holes. I'm okay. <laughs> 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 I'm with you.